You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. It's been 18 months since Russia invaded Ukraine. In that time, we've seen the annexation of four Ukrainian territories, the rise of the Wagner Group and the death of Yevgeny Prigozhin, a successful Ukrainian counteroffensive, and then a less successful one, which is currently ongoing. Meanwhile, the U.S. has engaged in what seems like a proxy war with Russia, providing $30 billion in weapons, training, and intelligence to Ukraine, and then imposing extensive sanctions against Russia. But some foreign policy experts are starting to question this strategy. Keith Gessen is a contributing writer to The New Yorker, and he has been covering the war in Ukraine since its beginning. He has just written a piece titled The Case for Negotiating with Russia, about the analysts who are pushing for diplomacy over warfare and why it's the U.S. that could ultimately decide how this conflict ends. Hi, Keith. Thanks so much for being here. Hi. Thanks for having me. So you wrote an essay last September titled How the War in Ukraine Might End. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the sort of potential outcomes that people were imagining, you know, back last September and you know, what has sort of changed in the war since then? You know, how the situation has kind of unfolded since you wrote that original piece? Sure. Um, So so that was was a piece about people who study what is known as war termination. So, you know, how Mm -hmm. wars end. Um, A lot of political science work over the centuries is really focused on how wars begin. And quite a bit less, is, is really focused on how you end a war. So um, the main kind of lesson from war termination for this conflict was, or any conflict, was that um, one of the two sides has to change their um, demands, mm-hmm. their minimum demands. And at the time, that was not happening. The demands were too far apart. And, you know, one of the kind of dynamic things that happens in a war is that um, when one of the sides starts doing better, their minimum demands increase. You know, the the side that is doing worse, um, their minimum demands might go down or or move, you know, in the direction of negotiations and peace, whereas the other side begins to feel more optimistic. So what was happening last fall was the Ukrainian counteroffensive um, that was going incredibly well. Um, yeah. they, they overran Russian troops in the Kharkiv region, and then they slowly and methodically forced a Russian retreat from Kherson. So at the time, there was a tremendous amount of optimism, you know, both in the West and in Ukraine, that, um, wow, we can mount an offensive operation, we can really push the Russian army back. Uh, so that was a moment of, well, okay, you know, let's see what Ukraine can achieve through military means. Um, and now, as you say, we're almost a year later, um, and now we're, you know, in the midst of um, another Ukrainian counteroffensive, and this one is is not going as well. Um, we're still in the middle, so it's a little, you know, no one is really comfortable making predictions about what's going to happen but clearly this has not been the same sort of success. The Russian defenses uh, are much better prepared. Um, they have these kind of endless minefields uh, that the Ukrainian army is moving through very slowly. And so now the question that sort of is posed in the article is, you know, what happens at the end of this counteroffensive? Um, what should the position of, 
of the U.S. be? You know, should we start thinking about urging or discussing with Ukraine um, a possible negotiation, um, probably not to end the conflict, but at least to freeze it? So your most recent essay focuses on a man named Samuel Cherup. Um, it seems like he is definitely encouraging some form of negotiation. Um, and I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit, basically, when he makes the case for negotiating with Russia, what does that actually mean and look like in his view? So he's, he's talking about um, a, a ceasefire, essentially, that becomes a peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and the comparison that he uses most often is, is the Korean War. You basically have what is known as an armistice. So the two sides agree to stop fighting. They don't recognize each other's claims. So I think technically South Korea and North Korea are still in a state of war. Um, mm-hmm. But the fighting stops. You know, it's it's obviously not the world's best situation, uh, North Korea. <laughs> um, not anyone's idea of, you know, a good neighbor. Uh, but um, at least the fighting um, has, you know, more or less stopped, uh, you know, and now for 70 years. So um, the argument that Cherup is making is, you know, wouldn't that be better than continuing this conflict at this level of intensity. And then the article describes kind of the various disagreements around that position and, and what other people think of it. Yeah, I mean, is it is it as simple as that? I mean, does Cherub think that both sides would be amenable to something like that at this point? Because it seems like a lot of the discourse surrounding um, the concept of negotiations that there've, you know, there's been a lot of sort of focus on the idea that Ukraine would have to um, commit to not trying to join NATO and, you know, that Ukraine would probably have to cede, you know, the territories that Russia has supposedly annexed to Russia formally. I mean, could it just be as easy as dropping weapons and agreeing not to fight anymore? Or would there have to be just major concessions? Well, um, there's kind of three areas of of disagreement that are prompted by Cherub's position. One is, if you are initiating some form of negotiation, does Russia, does Putin see that as a sign of weakness, right? Are you then essentially kind of ceding to Russia that you are going to give up, um, that you're going to stop the pretty significant support of Ukraine that you have been providing for the last year and a half? Yeah. So, so there's this kind of argument about, you know, what does it even mean to kind of initiate this process? Will Putin, you know, interpret that in a way that's going to make him harder to deal with. Yeah, like, do you only even um, sort of consider negotiating once you realize that you will probably lose if the fighting continues? Like, is negotiating exactly like a sign of weakness or just mm-hmm. a sign of um, inevitable defeat? It seems like Cherup um, would argue that, no, that isn't necessarily the case. Um, but mm-hmm. I feel like when we think about negotiations um, in the U.S., at least, that's often, that's what my mind first jumps to, naturally. Yeah, it's very complicated because the U.S. is a party to the conflict, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we don't have troops there, but we are obviously, you know, very supportive of Ukraine. We've sent a ton of weapons, more and more, as time goes on. So, um, you know, what would it mean for the U.S. to start down this path? Cherup would say, well, well, no, look, all wars end in, in some form of negotiation, right? So to start kind of talking about this and thinking about this does not, to his mind, does not, signal, you know, 
defeat or weakness. Um, but the second question that you, that you brought up is, um, and the second kind of area of debate is, you know, what is the military situation? And can Ukraine win? And that's, um, you know, we don't know. Um, the kind of military experts, some say, well, this is a stalemate, right? This, you know, Ukraine, given, you know, the weapons that they have, given the resources that they have, given the kind of limits that the West, and in particular the U.S., has asked Ukraine to kind of keep within, no, they can't, um, you know, the idea that they're going to push all Russian troops out of uh, Ukraine is impossible. Um, others say, well, actually, let's, let's, let's give war a chance, right? Let's, let's see what they can do. Uh, let's continue providing support. One kind of subset of that argument is this is relatively painless to us in the West. The Ukrainians are doing the fighting. Um, we're providing weapons and other kind of support, but we're not dying. And, you know, in the process, we are tying down uh, a major adversary, that is Russia. So as long as um, Ukraine wants to continue to fight, then we should let them. So that's a kind of debate about the military situation. And then the third debate, which you also brought up, is, is you know, what, what will Putin's reaction be? Like, you know, will Putin actually stop? Can you imagine a situation where he is satisfied with, for example, freezing the line of contact where it is more or less right now or where it is at the end of the current counteroffensive. And there's a lot of evidence that he won't stop, right? That he will not stop until Ukraine is defeated. Cherup's argument is that you could create a situation where you have a ceasefire and you make it really hard and really kind of unappealing to violate that ceasefire. You say, look, uh, we're going to move all our heavy weaponry back 10 miles from one another. Um, we're going to have, uh, you know, drones monitoring um, this line of contact. Um, if, you know, Russia observes the, the terms of this ceasefire, they will get sanctions relief, um, which is something Russia very much wants. And if they violate the terms, then the sanctions will snap back. In terms of the kind of bigger question, and I think it is, you know, a, a really a really painful question and, and the source of, you know, the, the intensity of this argument is that, you know, in this scenario, you do leave parts of Ukraine occupied by Russian forces. And we have a, a great deal of evidence that what goes on in places that are occupied by Russian forces is, is really horrible. You know, it, it, is, it is torture chambers, it is deportations, it is deportations of children uh, into Russia where they are given to other families. It is random killing of civilians. It's horrible. So, and and sorry, just to clarify. So, I mean, part of it seems like um, Cherub's idea of of a ceasefire. I mean, would it just solidify the borders that have been created by the war, like the territories that Russia has taken? Those would, in fact, stay with Russia. Well, I mean, so so I th I think the argument, you know, one um, actually Ukrainian uh, politician named Aristovich, um you know, recently kind of compared this and, and he was sort of floating this idea, a kind of similar idea is you say, you, it, it's like the two Germanys, right? Um, mm -hmm. So you kind of acknowledge that there's a partition, but the idea is that over time, through political means and through a kind of changing geopolitical situation, you 
eventually, you know, bring the country back together, right? So you could imagine a future Russian government that was not like the current Russian government um, and that would want to um, return these territories. Ukraine would not acknowledge and and Ukraine will never acknowledge, you know, Russian sovereignty over those territories, nor should it. Um, So the the distinction between an armistice and a peace deal is that you aren't making a a permanent deal where where you're saying, yes, these are Russian territories. You're saying, we will stop fighting, but no, we do not acknowledge, um, you know, Russian dominion here because this is our land. I see. I mean, would you say that the, um, you know, sort of that kind of like treatment of the territories, you know, not not acknowledging that they, you know, are under Russian sovereignty, but also, you know, not trying to take them back and just kind of and maybe not actively ceding them, but kind of like passively ceding them um, for the sake of the, the war ending? I mean, is that the place where Cherub's ideas start to get kind of controversial? I mean, I would imagine that um, in Ukraine that that is the sort of idea that would really prevent people from ever really being that interested in negotiating. And were it not for those territories, I feel like I could see a lot of people who would be very interested in the war coming to an end. Yes, I mean, absolutely. That is that is the kind of, that is it. That's the problem. And, and you know, there, there are people in Ukraine who, who make this argument. Um, they are in the minority. But look, there's also a, a lot of Ukraine that is not occupied. And you know, do we want this war to end so we can start rebuilding that part of Ukraine? And it gets back to the kind of second realm of disagreement that we talked about, which is if we thought that Ukraine could take this land back, you know, in the next few months, I don't think we'd be having this conversation at all. Yeah. Right? It is partly a question of, well, okay, um, what if they can't? Or what if they can, but it takes five years or 10 years? Um, and how much how much pain is that going to impose on the rest of the country and on the people doing the fighting? Yeah, I mean, when you put it that way, it seems like Cherub's ideas are um, are kind of extremely rational. I feel like you always kind of need people in foreign policy circles to be arguing for on the side of peace and um, looking for ways to, you know, end the war and to um, sort of bring violence to an end. But at the same time, it doesn't seem like, you know, even in the United States that this is an idea that's really, really been embraced at all. I mean, could you talk a little bit just about like how his ideas have been received? I mean, you know, it should be said that it's hard to separate sort of U.S. interests and kind of the U.S. position from the Ukrainian position. Um, His argument much of the time is about, you know, what is the American interest in this situation, which is largely the same as the Ukrainian interest, but not entirely. How do they differ? Well, uh, you know, the U.S. has a strategic interest in a Russia that is less aggressive, you know, that isn't um, invading its neighbors. And I think there's a kind of, there's a legitimate argument about whether that the message has been sent that kind of uh, aggressive wars of choice are not going to be kind of welcomed by the, um, you know, by the U.S., by NATO. And, and, he, and you know, and he makes the point that the, the kind of from the U.S. perspective, the, the Russian defeat has already taken place. Like like optically? You know, the, the, the kind of very real damage to Russia in the form of sanctions, in the form of the fact that Europe is, you know, genuinely 
um, weaning itself off Russian energy. Um, yeah. You know, all, you know, Nord Stream pipeline that had been so, Nord Stream 2 that had been so controversial for so many years has been blown up. And there's no interest in, you know, rebuilding it. So um, a lot of like, you know, genuine tangible damage uh, that's going to take years, you know, even if the conflict were to start tomorrow, it would take years for for Russia to kind of get back to the place where it was um, two years ago. So that's quite real. And, you know, and that happened, you know, and he says, well, that happened by April 2022. So that happened more than a year ago. And since then, you know, again, from the U.S. perspective, um, the gains have been marginal. And in fact, you know, again, from the U.S. perspective, there's, um, you know, there is a danger that Russia becomes uh, even even more of a rogue state than it now is, uh, a state with absolutely zero stake in the international system. Um, you know, you could argue that Russia is already there, so. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, that's the, that, from the U.S. perspective, this looks a, a little bit different than it does from the Ukrainian perspective. We'll have more with Keith Gesson on the political scene from The New Yorker in just a minute. So when you talk about just the ways in which Russia has, um, you know, real damage has been inflicted on Russia during the um, sort of the time of war, it, it reminds me of, I think it, there was a sentence um, in your, your the essay that you wrote in September about how the war in Ukraine might end, um, where you sort of talk about how it can almost be harder sometimes to negotiate the ending to a war once the war has begun because there are basically reasons for war that arise during the the actual conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, do you think that this is an example of that happening? I mean, do you think that it might even be harder now for Russia to agree to some sort of peace, just given how well the Ukrainians were doing, at least at the beginning of the war, and just all the things that you listed? But it seems like on one hand, they're in a worse position now than they expected to be. And so that could, um, you could see that as reason for them wanting to negotiate. But on the other hand, I can just imagine them being so sort of angry and embarrassed that there's almost more of an incentive to keep fighting and to win, you know, whatever win means at this point. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, at this point, the the regime has has put, a, you know, uh, a lot of eggs in this basket. Uh, of this war and has, you know, begun to really mobilize the population for a kind of long-term confrontation, existential confrontation, um, not so much with Ukraine, but with the West, right? That's that's how the war is sold in Russia. So yeah. it begins to take on its own momentum. And, you know, I mean, one of the things about Prigozhin, <laughs> which was sort of interesting, was, you know, his criticism of the war was you know, on the one hand, that it was launched under false pretenses. Um, this is kind of idea of denazification. Prigozhin, in his final kind of hours, was saying that was all a lie. Uh, but he also felt that the war was not being prosecuted aggressively enough. You know, there, there is, as one person, a uh, Russian analyst I spoke to uh, a few months ago, called it the party of more war. <laughs> In Russia, right? So mm-hmm. there is this kind of momentum that happens. And, um, you know, when we talk about uh, what this kind of ceasefire armistice would look like from the Ukrainian side, you know, would this be enough for Putin, having announced that this was an existential war um, 
against the West, having announced that the Ukrainian government was run by Nazis, um, you know, does taking, um, you know, a, a, a chunk of Ukrainian territory constitute a victory that he could sell plausibly to his population? Uh, 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 you know, maybe, but maybe not. And certainly from the Ukrainian side, uh, just the Russian atrocities have made them understandably much less willing to come to any sort of negotiated peace. Um, you know, after the Russian army withdrew um, from the towns around Kiev and Ukrainian forces and journalists uh, went into those areas, Bucha, Irpin, um, and saw what had happened there, negotiations which had been taking place after that, they more or less broke down. The, the kind of support for them in Ukraine really dropped after after people saw what had happened under Russian occupation. What do we know about um, what those negotiations looked like before they were before they were dropped? Um, there's a lot of disagreement about what exactly happened, and we know that there was a deal that looks um, quite appealing from from where we are right now. Um, you know, mm -hmm. s s uh, roughly that. Russian forces would withdraw from the areas that they took after, you know, um, after February 23rd, and that Ukraine would uh, promise not to join NATO. And, you know, as, as one former Ukrainian official uh, that I spoke to, you know, said, he said, you know, back then, Bakhmut was a beautiful city. Uh, Mariupol mm -hmm. was a city that was still Ukrainian, under Ukrainian control, you know. Um, if we could go back to that moment, I think we, you know, we'd want to. But, you know, the questions about that deal are, well, from the Russian side, was it genuine? Was Putin really prepared to do that? Um, we don't know. He has claimed subsequently that he was, but we, we don't know that. And the kind of sticking point um, from the Ukrainian side was that in exchange for not joining NATO, they wanted real security guarantees um, yeah. from the West. And it, it, at the time, the, it wasn't clear that the West was prepared to provide those security guarantees. Yeah, this question of whether Putin would actually honor a deal um, seems like kind of the big one. I mean, you mentioned that there are ways to make um, sort of breaking a deal very unappealing, um, mm -hmm. you know, like if you're lifting sanctions, putting them back down, that sort of thing. But is it wrong to suggest that Putin might be uniquely difficult to negotiate with? You know, just this question of whether can we even trust the person we're negotiating with? Would he ever honor a deal? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is uh, absolutely not. He would not. I mean, I, I don't think anyone, um, no one <laughs> that I talk to um, <laughs> thinks, oh, you know, you could take... Um, Putin at his word and, and that that would be the basis of a deal. I mean, he has broken every deal that, uh, you know, he has made, uh, certainly with Ukraine, right? He has not honored the 1994 Budapest Agreement, uh, whereby Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons. Um, Russia was a signatory to that, a very important signatory. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, arguably he did not implement uh, his responsibilities under Minsk, the, the Minsk agreements that were reached in 2014 and 2015. So no, uh, there is nobody that, um, you know, kind of would want to rely on the good word of Vladimir Putin. Um, the question is, you know, can he be swayed by incentives and disincentives, right? And, and something, yeah. you know, and something Cherub says, says, look, if, if Russia is intent on undermining Ukraine, 
um, and, you know, continuing to destroy Ukraine, no matter the cost to Russia, that's a terrible situation. And there's, there's not much more that we can do about it than we've done already. Yeah. If Putin is totally insensitive to costs and he, and, um, he has shown some serious cost insensitivity, then yeah, this just has to go on. Um, the question is, is there a situation where you could create some kind of arrangement where continuing the war becomes less attractive? I mean, that's, I think that's, that's what we're arguing about. I see. Um, you mentioned Prigozhin earlier, um, the the head of the Wagner mercenaries, and um, you know it was big news last week that he you know that he died mm-hmm. um, in this um, mysterious um, sort of plane explosion, plane crash, um, mm-hmm. would you call it? But um, I guess how does um, looks like a plane you know, explosion. How does um, <laughs> how does Prigozhin's death change the calculation that Cherup is making, if at all? I mean, do you think that his um, you know, the fact that he is no longer going to be a part of this part of this effort and that the the Wagner group, um, which was once, you know, a very sort of pivotal part of um, the Russian fighting force now that they don't really have a leader. I mean, do you think that that is going to sort of change the situation on the ground at all in a way that, you know, might sort of change the calculation for whether or not it's time to negotiate? Not as far as I can tell. Um, you know, I think of... Um, I mean, again, to step back a little bit, like the situation is very dynamic in a way because we, you know, Ukraine and the West is kind of waiting. You know, some people think that, including some people in the U.S. government, think that if if we keep this war going, if Ukraine keeps fighting, it will weaken Russia to the point where the Putin regime may collapse. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're always looking for signs of that happening. And certainly um, Prigozhin's mutiny, um, while not a sign of imminent uh, regime collapse, was certainly a sign that things were not stable inside of Russia. And, uh, you know, I wrote a piece about that uh, when it happened, you know, talking to people, you know, and one of one former CIA analyst um, who had had a, you know, a 10 percent chance of regime change. You know, she went up to 20. (laughs) So it wasn't like a, a, you know, a a significant move, but still kind of a lowish probability. And on the Russian side, they keep waiting for the Western coalition to collapse, Right. And, you know, they're looking for signs of European disunity. They're looking for Mm -hmm. signs of, um, you know, as one person put it to me, you know, uh, Putin has every reason in the world to wait until November 2024. Uh, to see yeah. if Donald Trump is elected and, and or, or some other Republican who has a very different position on U.S. support for Ukraine. So there are all these kind of uh, contingent factors. Um, but so far this kind of hope that, you know, the Putin regime would collapse so far has, has, not ha- has not taken place. Arguably, the, you know, assassination of Prigozhin certainly makes Putin seem a little bit more secure than he was, um, you know, um, two months ago. Yeah. You know, and meanwhile, we do have, you know, we had this Republican uh, debate uh, the other day, um, you know, where there were arguments over Ukraine, and, and clearly the Republicans are split on Ukraine. Um, some with kind of, you know, Mike Pence and Nikki Haley have a more kind of traditional Republican position on uh, supporting Ukraine uh, against Russian aggression. And then you have this kind of more Trumpian right, which wants to, uh, you know, send uh, 
our military resources to the southern border and into Mexico rather than Ukraine. First of all, first of all, Mr. Ramaswamy, you have 30 and, seconds. Mr. DeSant, you know, Nikki, DeSantis, I wish you well in your future career on the boards of Lockheed and Raytheon. You know, I'm not on but the, the fact of, of the matter, and Raytheon, and you know, Boeing you came off of it, but you've been pushing this lie. You've been pushing this lie want, all week, Nikki. You want Nikki. to go and defund Israel? Just, you want to okay, let me address that. China? I'm glad you, you brought that up. I'm going to address each of those right now. This is the false lies of a professional politician. There you have it. So you the reality make America is, less safe. you have no foreign me, policy experience, and it shows. And you know what? The, the foreign policy experience that you, you know, and, and it is an open question. As, as some people I talked to said, you know, look, the U.S. presidential election is not going to be decided by the war in Ukraine. That's not a kind of top priority for most voters. But that yeah. too is a kind of dynamic situation in U.S. politics. Yeah, are you surprised by how sort of support for um, support for the Ukrainians has kind of um, polarized along party lines? Um, yeah, I mean, it is it is a kind of um, a sort of rearrangement in American politics, right? Where traditionally the Republicans, you know, during the Cold War, were the uh, more hawkish party in terms of, you know, confronting the Soviet Union yeah. and um, the Democrats, you know, constantly had to prove um, their toughness, you know, with the Soviets. And, and there was a significant um, portion of the Democratic Party that really um, was eager for better relations with the Soviet Union and, and kind of peaceful coexistence. And I think that really changed in 2016 with the uh, Russian interference in the U.S. presidential election, um, yeah. and a clear Russian preference for Trump, and you know, in a way, I, I, I think uh, in U.S. politics, it's almost like it's not so much that Trump was an agent of Putin; it's more like Putin was an agent of Trump. <laughs> so you know, Putin has be, just become so associated with with Trump that you know, for for Democrats, he is you know a real enemy, and and you know, and obviously. There are many other very valid reasons for for thinking of him as an enemy. But yeah, that, I, I do think that's a kind of interesting and, and novel um, kind of realignment in American politics. And you see the more traditional Republicans, um, you know, looking um, almost out of step with their party as they look out of step in, in a lot of other ways, too. So um, one last question for you. I mean, it's something that I've been trying to... Um sort of figure out in terms of the the U.S.-Ukraine dynamic. Um, when we talk about, you know, Ukraine and Russia negotiating, how much of that is supposed to be driven by the U.S.? You know, I think that we all imagine a deal between Ukraine and Russia sort of being brokered by Zelensky and Putin. But, you know, to what extent is this something where, you know, Zelensky would have to reach the conclusion that, he is ready to, you know, start peace talks and then the U.S. is supporting him in this effort versus um, the U.S. kind of deciding that it's tired of, um, you know, sending weapons and supplying Ukraine with intelligence and then kind of encouraging Zelensky to move forward with some kind of negotiation or peace process. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one um, uh, former National Security Council staff member uh and Georgetown professor Charles Kupchan, um, he called it a searching conversation that the U.S. will have to have with its Ukrainian counterparts. Um, obviously, if Zelensky wanted, you know, to enter into, into some form of negotiation, I think that would be welcomed. 
in Washington, um, mm-hmm. mo- mostly. <laughs> um, I think there would be some people who, who actually would not welcome it. Cherup would say, well, look, uh, we are very involved in this. We are the most powerful country in the world. We don't have boots on the ground, but we... Um, you know, have a, a, a huge stake in this. And for us to pretend like we can't talk to Ukraine about how this war ends, that's uh, disingenuous and kind of an abdication of our responsibility. So, um, you know, I think somewhere in between, right? Um, and and Chav says this too, like you, you can't force Ukraine to stop fighting, but you might want to start talking about it, you know, and, and also start, you know, something we haven't talked about is kind of the the arguments within the U.S. government, right, where the Department of Defense is not entirely thrilled about sending quite so much weaponry to uh, Ukraine when, you know, we're supposed to be preparing for a potential conflict with China, right? So there are these kind yeah. of bureaucratic uh, or, you know, other kinds of... Um, you know, incentives and arguments that are in play. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think, you know, ultimately Ukraine has to decide. But, you know, the U.S. probably does, you know, have a role to play in, in kind of um, talking to them about it. Well, thank you so much, Keith. Thank you. Keith Gesson is a contributing writer at The New Yorker. You can read his essay, The Case for Negotiating with Russia, on newyorker.com now. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with support from Sydney Cobb. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton-Brown. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. <laughs>